Good afternoon and welcome to the Sitka Nature Show. This is your host, Matt. I want to thank you for joining me here as we're into the fourth weekend of May 2022. This month we'll have five weekends, but June is just around the corner. We are uh, definitely into the long light time of year with sunsets happening after 9 p.m. and not really all that far away from the summer solstice. It's hard to believe it's coming up so fast. Uh, we're definitely in the springtime here, transitioning towards summer. Some excitement for me of late was uh, last weekend, I got a chance to get out on the boat and got to see a bar-tailed godwit. They migrate from mostly on the Asian side of the Pacific Ocean. They are known for having an extremely long migration flight. A few years ago, there was one that was satellite tagged that was Uh, seemed to have been blown off course and ended up well east and actually spent some time at the north end of Crestoff Sound before continuing on its way and heading back towards western Alaska. Uh, This year there were several reported in Oregon, so it was probably conducive weather to get them blown off course again. And so I was felt fortunate to see this one out on a local beach. With birds, you never know what might be around, so I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. The conversation I have for this week's show is one I recorded earlier this spring with Kelsey Simic, Ellen Chenoweth, and Aurora Taylor. Kelsey was a student at Sitka High this past year and also part of the RAZOR program at the, South, the University of Alaska Southeast. Aurora was her mentor, and Ellen is the director of the RAZOR program at the university. We'll go ahead and join the conversation with each of them introducing themselves. Then we'll hear from Kelsey about her project, Aging Clams. We'll hear a little bit from Aurora about her experience with it as well and some of the other projects she's worked on. And then from Ellen about the Razor program in general. Yeah, my name is Kelsey Simic, and I'm a junior at Sika High School. My name is Ellen Chenoweth, and I am a whale biologist by training, but I am the director of the Razor program, which is Rural Alaska Students in One Health Research. And that's the program that Kelsey is a student in and Aurora is a mentor with. And my name is Aurora Taylor. I'm a fishery biologist at the Sitka Tribe of Alaska. And I was Kelsey's mentor for the last school year. It was awesome. Well, thanks, Kelsey and Ellen and Aurora for coming in. Yeah, and so maybe we'll just start with Kelsey. Tell us what your project was about. Maybe we'll start there. Yeah, so we... um, aged shellfish from Stargaven Beach from 2019 and 2021. We started this year with the focus on shellfish, and so that was kind of our inspiration for it. Um, And then Aurora had the idea that we could compare shellfish from two different years. And so the Sika Tribe of Alaska had done shellfish biomass surveys in 2019 and 2021, and so we those were the two years we aged. Our hypothesis was that we assumed that the 2021 shellfish would be older than the 2019 shellfish um, due to less harvesting pressure from the COVID-19 pandemic um, because people we assumed people wouldn't be harvesting as much because they, we lost the ability to gather in large crowds and shellfish harvesting is commonly done as a community activity. Um, so that was, yeah, that was our hypothesis. And so what we did was we took the shellfish from 2019 and 2021, um, and we went to the Highlander, and we aged all of them. Um, so there was 30 from each year, and the three of us who were aging the shellfish each aged every shell, and then we took the average from those three to make sure we had just the most confidence within our aging, since it was the first time Carl and I had aged shellfish before. And so, yeah, so 
we, that was very tedious, um, a very tedious process. <laughs> but how, how is it that you age? I mean, so I'm familiar with fishy aging from otoliths, which, which is, sounds like remarkably right. tedious. Uh, I'm not sure if it's similar with <laughs> clams or not. Yeah, so on uh, we uh, aged butter clams is what we were working on. And so there's the umbo line at the uh, hinge of the shellfish, and you start at that line, and each line that connects um, horizontally on both sides is called the uh, annuli. They're annulus. Um, so you count each one of those. And as um, a butter clam gets older, they start becoming closer together. Um, and yeah, so. So it helps to have uh, yeah. young, sharp eyes, which mine have become less <laughs> over the years, <laughs> it sounds like. So you're, so it's like counting tree rings, essentially. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you're you're counting the rings as they go around the shells, mm-hmm. and um, do you mark them as you count? Yeah, we didn't always. The younger ones, we didn't necessarily need to. Some of them were as young as three, and so those were pretty easy to figure out how old they were without having to keep track. Um, but we had some that were as old as eighteen, and so those got really the lines got really close together, and so we'd have to have a pencil and make sure they go all the way around on both sides and. Make sure it's not just another line that's not actually an annuli, but the, you know. Oh, so they have other lines that aren't that yeah. are just like partial partial mm-hmm. things that don't connect all the well, way. Well, that around. sounds inconvenient. Yeah, it yeah. is. <laughs> it didn't help make it any easier. But so then towards the end of their life, they were really close together. So we had to have you know, we'd all have to come around together and be like, "Is this really a line, or do you, is it really seventeen or eighteen, or how old is it, and what does this mean?" and it was especially hard if they were broken off around the ends because some of them would get chipped. Um, and so that was very difficult. Mm. <laughs> but, you know, with the three of us, we really were able to figure it out, which was, yeah. So how often did you, I mean, were you mostly within a year or two or or, or mostly like right together and there's just a few that you had to, you know, have a boxing match over to see who was the, uh, <laughs> the victor? <laughs> um, yeah, for the most part. Um, I, we did the 2019 shellfish first and I think... We were a little more off on those. We'd have to, like, I'd get that one was nine, and Carl would get that one's 11, and then Aurora might get, like, six. And so we were like, oh, that's not similar at all. (laughs) So we'd have to come around and make sure we all agreed on the same number. But by the time we got to the 2021 shellfish, uh, the butter clams, we were doing pretty good. We were within one or two years of each other and we'd, you know, if two of us got nine and the other got ten, we're like, oh, well, I wasn't sure about one of them, so let's go with nine. And So, you know, we got better as we went, but for the first batch it was kind of mm. a little more rough to figure yeah. out. I suppose it's something that you get better at. Well, so, mm-hmm. I mean, clearly they're growing because they're making these lines, but mm-hmm. I guess they don't grow at the same speed all the time. Mm-hmm. So, were you noticing, like, how were you noticing, like, you said three-year-old. I don't have any idea how big a three-year-old <laughs> clam is versus an 18-year-old clam. We're like, did, if they're getting smaller as they grow bigger, presumably their their growth rate at some level is, in linear dimension, is slowing. But, like, what kind of size range were you seeing, and, and how did that relate to the to the ages that you were Yes, getting? so they, um, butter clams become sexually mature around five years, I think. So after that, they put a lot less of their energy into growing and a lot more into reproducing. So the lines become a lot closer together. And some of them, we had like an eight-year-old clam that wasn't much smaller than an 11-year or a 12- or 13-year-old clam. 
just because towards the end of their life, life they're not putting nearly as much energy into growing as there are other things reproducing and surviving. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's yeah. So the age or the size varied quite a bit, just based on ages. If, you know, yeah, some three-year-old clams weren't too different from even eight-year-old clams, mm. and so you can't really. Or on the one the uh, butter clams we aged at least, it was you couldn't really look at it and say, "Oh, this is a three-year-old clam." Before you uh, age it all the way through, so. So I guess if if we ever harvest clams out there, we could figure out how old the clams are that we're eating and whether they're you know mm-hmm. teenagers or um, or grandparents or something. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, so the the clams are do they have a planktonic phase of their life and then they settle out or how do the clams do their thing do you know? Um, I'm not too sure. No. Do you, do you know Aurora how the the clam life cycle works? No, I'm not an expert, but yeah. I know they do have a planktonic phase when they're like yeah. squirted out into the yeah. mud <laughs> um, and then they kind of calcify. Um, and that happens pretty quickly. The calcification does. Mm. So, which is why you have, um, Kelsey mentioned the umbo line. So you have this like line that's not an annuli that you don't count. And that's just because so much growth happens so quickly. Mm. And so that's in that, that first little bit of time. And mm-hmm. then when they set up, so when you say three years old, then that's, that's three rings, but they had some age before that where they weren't forming the rings yet. Right. Yeah. That's just a couple months. Yeah. Oh, okay. So it's a relatively short period of time. Interesting. Yeah. And do you have a sense of how old? So you mentioned you got up to 18 years old. Mm-hmm. Like, was that pretty common or was that like, holy cow, this great grandfather <laughs> clam here, we've never seen one close to that old? Um, no, the the um, mean age was about uh, eight to nine um, for both the 2019 and 2021. So 18 was an outlier for sure. Um but there was not actually too much of an outlier because some were 16 and 15 and, you know, but the oldest we found was 18. So they weren't all 18-year-old mm. uh, butter clams. Right, yeah. Well, and I guess, I mean, I don't really know. I don't harvest butter clams myself. So I'm not sure if people are aiming for a particular size class that, like, those are the best ones. And if you get those other ones, they're tough and these other ones are too small. Or, mm. or if they're just like, we take everything that we get that, you know, comes out of the hole we dig. Uh, do you know if there's like a preference for sizes that would tend to s- select for you know certain size mm-hmm. ranges and maybe then affect the ages that are getting harvested? Right. Um, from what I've heard from you know people who do harvest butter clams is they tend to go with those bigger, older shellfish. Um, I've heard too it's because you know they want a chance for the smaller ones to reproduce as well as I, they're probably not as you know big and. You know, less to eat um, but yeah those older ones then have had a chance to reproduce and have gone through that whole thing mm. but yeah and so you mentioned there that you that there wasn't much difference in average mm-hmm. between the two years uh, the, from, the, from the collections so your hypothesis was that maybe there was a difference between 2019 mm-hmm. and 2021 um, that could be due to people harvesting less or mm-hmm. um, I suppose in, in principle like like over time, if they were harvesting too much, then you could have the fish, the the clams getting younger and younger because nobody makes it to mm-hmm. to be eighteen. Um, and so it sounds like at least over that two year stretch, you weren't seeing any a suggestion of that either. 
Yeah, we didn't find that there was a significant difference between the 2019 and 2021 butter clams. Um, but that wasn't a bad thing necessarily. It's a good thing, if anything. Um, it shows that they they weren't being over harvested to the point that they can't, you know, live to this point of reproduction. Um, and so they are able to reproduce. And we did find those younger clams that are like three and four. So that shows that there is the it's a healthy clam bed and they are able to reproduce. Um, but it also shows that they're, you know, these um, butter clams have resilience because, you know, even though there's this major change among humans, there wasn't this change on butter clams. So we, you know, yeah. Yeah. Well, it makes me wonder a little bit about, um, yeah, like the, the, I don't know if you looked at it, but like a histogram or the shape of the distribution. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with a lot of things, uh, you know, young ones are more subject to predation. And so Mm -hmm. like you have a, a peak when it's young and then and then it kind of, you know, in terms of age classes, gets smaller. And so you might have a skewed distribution instead of a, of a symmetric distribution. Mm-hmm. Did you look at that at all? Yeah, we made a histogram and we found that it was pretty symmetric, actually, for the most part. The peak, the um, most common age was that uh, 7 to 9 and 10 to 12 range. Um, and then there were some of those older ones. But they, we still found a good amount of those younger shellfish. Um, yeah, which was good and shows that, you know, they are living at least to be able to reproduce at yeah. that age. Well, you know, it's it's funny when you start, like every time I start looking at something, then I end up with way more questions than I started with, <laughs> even though I tried to only answer one. Um, and so, like, as as we're talking here, I'm like, oh, I wonder what all the, you know, because, yeah, people are harvesting clams there, clearly. Mm-hmm. I've seen people out there digging. But, uh, you know, other creatures eat clams, and mm-hmm. I'm not sure what all gets clams actually and at what ages I, you know the sunflower stars I think get clams but they have been a little scarce in recent years mm-hmm. and presumably that made a difference but I don't know how much you know and without having data it's hard to hard to make a guess but do you have a sense of what other other uh, factors might be influencing I guess the other thing is that reproduction from year to year could be like some years might be great and you have a lot of recruitment and other years maybe not so good uh, do you have a sense of or, or you know what sort of things might be impacting the population overall be out besides just uh, human harvest? Yeah, other predators like um, seabirds and sea otters, you you know, they um, eat butter clams as well. And you can tell when a sea otter is eaten or when has, it's, yeah, when a sea otter is eaten a uh, butter clam, you can tell because of the way they open them. Mm. Um, but also just um, other environmental factors. Um, you can actually tell from aging the shell, like, how much, how um, worn their shell is. You can kind of tell what environment they've been living in, or if it's they have really small shell, uh, rings for a period of time that are really close together. You know, the waters might be warmer or colder than is ideal for them to live in, and you know they have may not have had the healthiest environment to live in, so they've had to put extra energy into finding food and that kind of a thing. So if you get really good at this and decide to have a hobby, I guess you could do like they do, they call it dendrochronology, where they, they recreate uh, past conditions by looking at overlapping tree rings mm. from dead trees that they find. So you can collect shells off the beach, right? And then you can match them up. And yeah, s- sounds like a great way to spend a Saturday evening <laughs> uh, <laughs> if you enjoy counting clamshell rings. But no, it is interesting to just think about like how far back in time could you go with the, with the uh, clams that were 
that were collected by matching them up. Because I would imagine that that clams in a in a particular clam bed have correlated uh, ring size, basically, mm-hmm. and then it has to do with you know the conditions, as you were saying, the warmth yeah. or the cold or. And is that is that actually like? I mean, this is probably a, a difficult question. Maybe somebody knows the answer. I'll just ask it. Maybe you know. Um, is that more about food availability, or is that like the actual thermodynamics of of the way the clam works that it does better or worse in the in the warmer cold? Um, someone else might know more, but I think it's both um, mm-hmm. because you know the warmth and temperature of the clam bed will also affect the type of food that is there and that they have access to, but then also, yeah, what they have energy to go out of their way to get. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a great answer. Um, Both, I would say. Um, Slope and, like, aspect of the beach is something people don't always consider, but when you're looking at a largely sessile organism that doesn't have arms or legs, (laughs) um, just moving a couple inches in the beach, in the substrate, makes a big difference. Uh, Where's the water table? You know, are they getting... They're filter feeders, right? So thinking about Starry Gavin, all of the nutrients that are washing out of the estuary, out of that river, that's what's going to be feeding these clams, largely. Um, So thinking about a drier year, you know, like 2019, that was hot and beautiful. Um, Did the clams grow less that year than they would have in a a cold and rainy year? That's something we haven't looked at. But um, water temperature and ocean acidification, because they are calcifiers, um, that, you know, use calcium in the water to build their shells and then food availability and temperature. Those are all really important things. Yeah, I suppose it, it speaks to the value of having long-term data sets and just knowing, okay, we have a lot of variability year to year in weather and we also have some, you know, long-term trends, uh, you know, medium-term trends, long-term trends that are that are shaping the, the weather that we actually see. And from any particular window, it's difficult to draw, you know, we always start having these questions about, well, what does this mean in the big picture? And, well, when you only have two years of data, then it's mm-hmm. a little hard to, to draw conclusions that far out. But it is, it is interesting to kind of develop the, the understanding of what it takes to start measuring those things. And uh, so you said that you were relying on collections that had been made as part of some other other uh, project and did you get a chance to go out and dig some clams yourself or, or do you're, you're like well I had plenty of plenty of fun uh, just counting the rings I didn't need to actually get muddy uh, yeah and I think it was February or late January we went out to Star Gavin um, with some people from Sikatra of Alaska who had who know you know who do the shellfish biomass surveys um, and we recreated the process um, and it was pouring rain <laughs> it was one, I think it was one of the wettest Febru- days of... February you know, was wet yeah. this year. Yeah. yeah. Yes. It was very wet. Um, and we didn't find any shellfish, um, sadly, <laughs> either. But we did dig and we went through the process to see what it would you know, be like. And if we had collected these shellfish, how it might have been difficult depending on where on the beach we were. And, you know, we learned about that process, but it, in a very wet way. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I suppose, so did you, you learned a little bit about the process of estimating biomass while you're doing that? Or not so much? You're just at the process of, of what it takes to collect? Mostly the process of what it yeah. takes to collect, yeah. Yeah, I guess because the challenge with measuring biomass is, I mean, the, the way to get it right is to dig up everything. But of course, then you don't have anything <laughs> left. Um, and so, so, I you thought know, you were going to yeah. say that it's boring. <laughs> and you oh, no. your answer. Your answer is zero. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, well, it was. Yeah, you can speak exactly. in past tense. 
Yeah, no, I, uh, uh, yeah, it is interesting. I mean, my background is actually math and statistics, so it's all about the sampling and, and, and then the conclusions you can draw from there. But yeah, it is an interesting challenge to figure out what biomass is, since you were saying, or are the, the, uh, you know, it can make a difference. Like some of these environmental factors make a pretty big difference in terms of where things are successful. And so you can't just assume that it's uniform everywhere. Like, well, we dig a hole here and it's like that everywhere. So that can be a, a challenging aspect of, um, of understanding. And I guess that's also the case. I mean, even when you're looking at this, if, if you're, mm -hmm. if those collections were made at different places on the beach, maybe that could affect, you mm -hmm. know, the age distribution that you're seeing, <laughs> which I'm sure is probably beyond the scope of what you're able to do just because you have the collections that, that were given to mm -hmm. you. So, um, did you sort of consider those sorts of things? Uh, you know, that let's just call them caveats, the things mm -hmm. that, well, we hope this all worked out well, but, you know, there's a possibility that there's some other factors here that we weren't able to consider. Yeah, I think especially just because we didn't collect the shells or, or the shellfish ourselves, you know, we trust that they all did it correctly and with the protocol to it. But, um, you know, yeah, there is always that possibility. And, you know, yeah. Yeah. Well, it is, you know science <laughs> life's complicated it turns out you know you can you can get in the lab and sometimes simplify things but when you're out working in the field mm -hmm. things like to do what they like to do and they don't always like to conform to our ideas of what would be nice and, and tidy from a data analysis standpoint yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. carl and kelsey um were real troopers about it considering they didn't get to um go collect and we did collect it was raining <laughs> um and as someone who did the survey and collected the shells i can say there's you try to not have bias, um, but there definitely is some, you know, when you're digging a hole and you have to pick one clam to keep, is that mm. going to be the big clam, like subconsciously? Which one are you, are you going to, you know, kill the baby clam? <laughs> no one wants to murder the baby clam. Um, or maybe you dug up half the beach and then you said, oh, I forgot, we're supposed to be keeping samples for aging. And then you end up, you know, taking from one area over another. So, um that randomness is important and we try to avoid bias, but human error is yeah. all around us. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, so when you're doing the biomass surveys, are you mostly just weighing and putting back then? And But you were keeping a few for, for future use? Yeah. So yeah. we dig um, transects along the beach, like perpendicular to the low tide line. Mm -hmm. um, and we measure and weigh um, everything, identify, measure and weigh. Um, everything, and then we turn that into a biomass estimate, like a solid number of what we think's on the beach, and we develop um, biomass heat maps and abundance maps by species. Um, and that's done with a partnership for the CTOR tribes, the Southeast Alaska Southeast Alaska Tribal Ocean Research Consortium. Mm -hmm. um, so we do that with partners all across the Southeast and in Kodiak. So it's a way of basically monitoring, monitoring the health of these shellfish populations. Are, are you doing all species or, or just species that are targets for human consumption? Um, we identify and record all species, but the, the kind of um, most tar species of concern are the ones we focus on for the maps, which are little necks and butter clams and cockles. Mm. Um, so we'll see some surf clams and some macomas based on where you are, but those don't tend to get eaten as much. So, yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, so, Kelsey, you uh, have done this part. Well, I don't know if you're completely done with the project yet or not, but you've been working mm -hmm. on this project. <laughs> yes, you're done now. So yeah. Like, all right. Yes. Great. So, 
So, uh, you know, what's your sort of impressions having, so you're a, to be clear, you're a junior in high school. Mm-hmm. This has been a part of uh, a larger, uh, an opportunity provided through the, the Razor program that the uh, that Ellen is is coordinating. Are you, like, is that in Sitka that you're coordinating or is that a more general? Um, I'm based in Sitka, but we've got students all over Southeast Alaska. Okay, great. And so you've had this opportunity, like, what are your thoughts on the experience and, and what do you feel like you've, you've gotten out of it? Yeah, I thought it was all really cool. And, you know, we're just talking about shellfish, but we learned about a lot more than just shellfish. Um, That was just our main, you know, research project. Um, But, yeah, I feel a lot more well-rounded coming out of it with, you know, science. I feel like I learned stuff about all different areas and, you know, science ethics and all of that. Um, And we really focused on the One Health uh, concept also, which I think is really important in this study um, that we did or the project that we did because um, uh, humans eat shellfish. <laughs> and so, you know, how they're interconnected and, you know, that. And so I think that was a big takeaway. And, you know, it's not something, it's something I knew about but hadn't considered as much when looking at different types of science research and projects and so, yeah. so what's the One Health? I mean, that was part of the Razor name, I think. But what in in sort of your your sense of it, having worked on on the project with with that, what's how would you describe One Health as as a concept for for folks that aren't familiar? Um, it's the interconnectedness between animals, humans, and the environment, and how they all impact each other and work together. And yeah, nice. Well, and I'm, I'm just curious, like, you you live in Sitka, obviously. Have you grown up here your whole life? Yeah, I have. So outdoors played a played a big role in sort of your sense of sense of place? Yeah, I think so. Not as much as, you know, some other people. I don't go climbing mountains every weekend like some of my friends. Um, but, yeah, definitely, you know, going out on the boat, going to the beach. And I think this program really helped me learn more about it and human impact on the environment and animals. Um, and, you know, it just made me more cautious as well, too, with because of the learning more about the interconnectedness. Between yeah. Them all. Yeah. It's interesting to have the different perspectives, you know, because when you're out there just recreating mm-hmm. or I like right. to think of, you know, for myself, my, my sort of, uh, I guess, uh, tag phrase, if you will, is getting to know the neighbors. That's how I like to think about it. I'm mm-hmm. just interested in all of the things that are out there. And I just right. I like to think of them as neighbors and I like to learn to recognize them like I recognize you know, friends and family. I don't mm-hmm. need to look at the book and say, all right, I'm tall, brown hair, mm-hmm. you know, oh, that's Joe. Uh, you know, I just know Joe. And so that's kind of how I approach, you know, trying to to become aware of the environment here. But yeah, having the opportunity to go a little more in depth with a particular mm-hmm. species, you know, in this case, you were, was it, it was little neck clams, you said that you were? Uh, it was on? butter clams. Oh, butter clams, yeah. sorry, yeah. Butter clams. And so butter clams, oh yeah, little neck ones are the ones that have crossing patterns both ways, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm trying to remember my my, my <laughs> clams. Uh, clams is a group I haven't spent as much time with, partly because they're in the mud, and I don't get too excited about digging <laughs> digging in the mud at low tide. <laughs> Sometimes though, you find the shells or find them on the surface. So, um, but it is it is fun. So. Um, yeah, maybe. So, Aurora, you said that you work in fisheries in general. You cooperated. This is a cooperative project with the Southeast Alaska Tribal Ocean Research Lab. I've spoken to some folks from there uh, for the radio show previously about, you know, their work on PSB and that sort of thing. But you're working with a tribe as fisheries. Like, what all do you get to do? As, I mean, you get to be a mentor here and, and certainly love to hear about that experience. But, like, what else do you get to do as well? Yeah, yeah. Um... 
it's really diverse, and I really love that. I feel like a lot of the times um, you can get pigeonholed, you know, as a working professional, and so there's a lot of flexibility in this job, and I love that. Um, the mentorship was amazing. That was uh, my first time being a mentor was this year. Uh, and Kelsey and Carl's project operated under the shellfish habitat and population assessment. That's one of eight fisheries programs that we run, um, and it's funded through the Fish and Wildlife Service Tribal Wildlife Grant. Um, my main project, though, is operating the Clag Bay Weir. So mm. we um, we do a Clag Bay sockeye salmon assessment. Um, so I'm living out in the field in a dry cabin um, most of the summer, 10 days on and 10 days off. Um, and that's something that when I became a mentor, I was so nervous. I was like, oh, what are we going to do for field work? You know, there's, the fish aren't running. <laughs> what am I going to do? Um, and so Kelsey was a huge trooper about drinking coffee and <laughs> counting rings because um, it does get to be more hands-on in the summer. Um, things have picked up quite a bit. We have a couple herring projects that we do um, partnership with the University of Washington um, and with the schools here where we do education. And then the summer is largely sockeye. Um, and then kind of in the fall and winter, it, it becomes more analysis and data and reporting and more of the Excel boring things that <laughs> most people will roll their eyes at. But um, it is diverse and, and stimulating. And then it's nice to be inside when the winter takes a turn. So Yeah, October... October is a good time for Excel spreadsheets. Yeah, I, guess. I don't. I don't want to be living in the woods in October. <laughs> yeah, Clag might be kind of interesting. So, how many summers have you been able to to be up at Clag? Three. Yeah, you, three. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of curious. I'm mean, like, I've been by that area. I've not actually been into Clag Clag itself, but I think I'm curious. Like your experience there over the three years, you, you know, presumably the first year it's all kind of new, and mm-hmm. and and then you know each each additional year it's more familiar presumably but like how's your sort of sense of the place changed and and like your experience of of being up there it's kind of funny because um when it's beautiful like in 2019 it's hot and sunny and you're you know laying on the beach and waiting for fish to pass and you you want to be having all this fun but then you're like looking at the stream levels are abysmal and we're not getting rain and it's a largely precipitation based driven um driven stream up there so inside, you're like, yay, sun. And then a little voice is like, no, the fish need water. <laughs> um, uh, it's it's awesome. I love it up there. Um, it's a really good time. We have just an in-reach we use to communicate with town um, for our basic needs. And, and then it's like a, things really seem to slow down. Time really seems to slow down up there. So I'm really looking forward to it. <laughs> mm, nice. Yeah, that 2019, we had, I think we set the record in Sitka for uh, days without rain at the airport. I, if I'm remembering correctly, it was like mm. 29 days without rain. It was, um, Juno had warmer temperatures and they had a lot of smoke come in. We had smoke that was high, but didn't come down low. And it wasn't as hot because we have marine layers. I don't know how it was at, at Clag, you know. It, I imagine that it was, well, you're in, there's a number of outer islands and stuff. So I don't know how mm-hmm. often does the marine layer push in there. Like that, that kind of just cloud bank that comes over. Um, I would say it mostly depends on the wind. Yeah. It's largely protected. The side of the bay we're on, it doesn't get too bad unless it's like the perfect southeast and then you just get hammered. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but it's largely pretty protected and so we don't get the worst of it up there. Nice. 
And how long does, I mean, like, when do you, presumably you want to be there before the first fish are. And, uh, <laughs> presumably. But, yeah. But I don't, you know, I don't know, like, the early, early birds that, uh, so to speak, that get there extra early sometimes. Or, mm-hmm. like, what is your sort of timing for the run up there? Yeah. So we target sockeye salmon and we see the largest flows in, like, um, August. So we'll go up there and we'll build the weir in late June. And usually we don't see fish until mid-July. Um, so thinking about, you know, like when you'd go dip netting. <laughs> uh, late July, early August is when we see most of it. Um, and we are targeting sockeye because they're subsistence. So usually we take down the weir the first or second week of September and it's just pinks. So mm-hmm. when we when we pull the weir down, there's still fish in the stream. They're just not sockeye so yeah but it seems like that maybe is a little more concentrated run than readout and a little later run i mean i don't know how much Mm -hmm. you you know about the readout run i'm just thinking about when i think of people going to go fishing at readout yeah it is very flashy there because it is largely precipitation based and so we'll see um the fish pulled up behind the weir kind of just waiting for it to get deep enough so waiting for like a really good two or three days of heavy rain um, and so then when you're busiest, you know, passing and sampling fish, it's pouring rain on you, of course. <laughs> um, well, that gives you more time to but, enjoy the sun, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. It does feel more like boom and bust yeah. than um, readout is, is like just kind of seems constant, you know. Yeah. Well, and so the the what what are you you're just are you just counting them? Or are you also doing some sampling or like what is it that that you do with the the sockeye up there? Um, yeah, we count them and we sample them for ASL, that's age, sex, and length data. Um, so we get like brood year data and um, male to female ratios. And we have been doing this project since two thousand one. So we have um, a little bit more data um, that goes back farther than, uh, say, the shellfish program we've been doing started in 2018. So like you were saying about long-term monitoring, you know, we have four years of data, <laughs> three soon to be four years of data. So um, we don't have nearly as much as we do up at CLAG. But um, we send those samples to the Juno Age Lab um, with Fishing Game, and we get our data back and come up with this really awesome 60-page report about all the details you could imagine. <laughs> Is that a report that folks that's available to folks, or is that for internal use kind of things? Um, it's published through the Office of Subsistence Management for the Fish and Wildlife okay. Service. Um, I am not totally sure what their record keeping is like, but I, I don't think it's under lock and key. Yeah, in principle, <laughs> it, one could it might take an it. ask, yeah, an email, yeah, or something yeah. like that to the appropriate person. But um, yeah, it's not a secret. Nice. <laughs> well, so. I mean, I guess I guess I don't know. I mean, presumably you've been working on this, but I don't know how much of the stuff you sort of keep on your head. Like, do you have a sense of? The, I've heard that sockeye more than other fish come back at variable ages, and and or more than other salmon species, I should say. Like, do you have a sense of kind of what the typical age is for the sockeye that you're seeing there? I do because I just wrote that awesome report <laughs> that I was talking about. Um, we see um, age two point two, so we do our age in European age, and that refers to the number of years in freshwater and the number of years in saltwater. So a two point two would be two years rearing, growing up in that freshwater system, and two years of ocean. Add on the year that they come back that you sample them, so that's a five-year-old fish. Um, so we see a lot of five-year-old, four- and five-year-old sockeye, which could be a 1.3 or a 2.2. Um, so that's that's kind of how we, and I think fishing game generally, tends to age their fish is a little bit more descriptive than a, 
a 2015 fish. So mm. we, we make that distinction. And are you seeing, like, how consistent are, I mean, I, I don't know how much you've looked at the, the data, but you, this is going to be your fourth year, I guess, up there. Mm. Um, so, but is your sense that it's a fairly consistent run, or is it kind of like some years are, like, amazingly large, like the, the uh, return rates? Um, yeah, in regards to escapement or yeah. well, age composition? Yeah, yeah, uh, in, yeah, from year to year, I guess I'm just thinking in terms of, of like how many fish are coming back, which I suppose is related to both those questions. Um, you know, I don't know how often they're spending two years in the in the stream or in the lake, right. I guess, uh, rearing versus one year and, and going out. Um, yeah, um, let's see. So this it used to be quite larger than it was um, like back in 2001 and 2002. They're seeing... 20 to 30,000 fish. Um, this year we had 7,000 escape, uh, 9,000 terminal return. So while we're up there, we're sampling and passing fish and we're also doing creel interviews. Um, so all those people you see on the dock, you know, with the clipboards <laughs> who are like, how many fish did you get today? We get to do that too. <laughs> um, and yeah, thank you for everyone who stops and talks to us. Um, it is really nice to get some conversation when you're up there. Uh, so this year we had a return of 9,000, and that was a slight rebound. 2018 and 2019 were the worst by far. We saw about 2,000 fish come mm. back. So, Is there any sense of whether that's uh, land-based, or I mean the, the, the stream in, in lake-based or, or, um, or ocean-based survival? There's not really. Um, there's so many factors it could be. So we actually got another grant, a new program that's going to start this year uh, for limnology tests on Clag Lake. So hopefully we can find out um, if the productivity of the lake is limited. Uh, we'll be sampling for zooplankton, which are the primary food source of rearing sockeye. Um, and we'll look at temperature and dissolved oxygen and some other things. Um because ocean conditions, there's so much, and their migration corridor is not fully understood. So by focusing on freshwater, we hope to either find out what's going on or at least rule out freshwater as the, the source of the decline. Mm. So. Yeah, I suppose, I suppose in principle, one could try and count the fry that are out-migrating. I don't know how easy <laughs> that is to do. Yeah, but. you could. Yeah. <laughs> um, people do, like, net weirs and video shoots. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have that. At yeah. this time, but I know the Forest Service has some similar projects where they look at emigrating smolt. Yeah, and like, I think I must have. I, I, there was a there was a guy that I when I taught at Sheldon Jackson, he was in my classes, and he'd worked for Fish and Game for years. And he told me he could identify uh, salmon fry by the feel in their hand in his hand. He'd been doing that for so long. <laughs> but I think he was. I think there were some places where they were monitoring outbound, mm-hmm. like inbound cutthroat trout or something like that, but also outbound fry. Right. And he just had done it so often for so long that that he just knew him by feel which was kind of astounding to me but that's a cool party trick yeah yeah <laughs> give me a, i can tell you whether it's a king or a coho or a, a chum salmon yeah well you know we all develop our skills i guess but yeah no it was it was uh it was pretty interesting to hear him talk about just like the experience i mean he'd been doing this for decades essentially at that point yeah. and uh kind of getting the sense of some of these streams a little bit and so yeah that'll be interesting you know over time just kind of beginning to recognize the um, yeah, the year-to-year variability and sort of the things that stay stay similar and, and that mm-hmm. kind of getting to know a place. And it sounds like you have lots of lots of time to just sort of settle in. And uh, <laughs> for better and worse, you know, I suppose, depending on how social you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, nice. Well, um, so Ellen, you are 
coordinator, I don't remember, did you say director or coordinator? Director. Director, all right. So director of the, the RAZOR program. And yeah, how did, like, how does this all work? I guess until we hire a coordinator, I'm also the coordinator. I see. <laughs> so <laughs> let me know if you're interested. Um, yeah, so the RAZOR program is funded by the National Institutes of Health, and it's a partnership with the University of Alaska Southeast and the Sika Tribe of Alaska and their connection with all of our CEDAR partners. And those are the folks in um, all these different communities around Southeast that um, volunteer to be mentors. And so um, the other partner is the BLAST program at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. So it's kind of a nice connection with, um, you know, the high schools and then and then college prep. So we um, talk to them a lot about kind of how best to prepare our students for college. Nice. And so you have, like, what's a typical year in terms of number of students that you are, I mean, I guess, I guess you're sort of working with them, but you're also kind of like, I don't know quite how that works. They're working with their mentors, but also with you. Is that kind of how that works? Yeah. So I'm their instructor. Um, they come to Sitka, hopefully next year they will come here, um, not do it remotely um, for Whale Fest. And so I'm their instructor for that course. Um, it's a one credit in November. And then I'm also their instructor for their spring course. And they can take one, two, or three credits depending on their availability and schedule and ambition and all those things. Um, but I meet with them over Zoom um, twice a week for, for all my groups of students. So this year we have 18 students, um, which is our biggest year yet, and getting pretty close to maxing out uh, what we can handle. Uh, we had five different research projects. Um, last year we had eight, and we had four different research projects. So um, it definitely varies, but we've been really happy with how the program's kind of grown a little bit and the words getting out about it and students are are excited to join which is great nice so we've heard a little bit about the um aging clams mm -hmm. uh project here and you said that but there are five projects what other sorts of projects are people having the opportunity to to uh work with yeah so we like to just kind of go with um the expertise and the interests of the mentors um and then you know they talk to the students and kind of show them a range of different monitoring programs that are happening in each community and then let the students kind of um see what they most enjoy working on um and so i'm just thinking about enjoying aging shellfish <laughs> but <laughs> well i mean you've climbed into whales so i mean that's a it, that's, pretty, that's a pretty rarefied air I for know. Uh, yeah. you know i mean it's hard to come back from that you know I, you know and say well you know shellfish aging but i've been inside a whale so yeah well, the aging itself might have not been the most uh, thrilling experience, but I was really excited about that project for a couple of reasons. I mean, I think there's, uh, you were talking about dendrochronology, so sclerochronology is the shell oh, okay. aging. So that is a thing. It is a thing. Um, and so there's been a lot of work done in Washington as well, so being able to think about climate change and um, different growth rates up here compared to down south and um, as our conditions kind of change. So I think it's a, it's a really cool project um, from that standpoint. And also because I just like to think about like what animals know about us. And <laughs> like when COVID happened and um, I was like, well, do the whales know that COVID happened? And I was like, I bet they do. I bet they can tell that there's not as many planes coming in and that that's something that um, they pay attention to. So they know something's up. And the boats. Yeah. yeah a lot exactly. less boats, especially in some places. Yeah, yeah. for sure. So um, anyway, but that, yeah, so that was one of our projects here in Sitka. Then we had a Mount Edgecombe group that did some work with Helen Dangle. And those students did a microplastics um, survey. And they compared different species and different um, areas. So they collected sl um, 
seaweed and uh, mussels from Stargaven and uh, Japonski and did a comparison there. And then, and then they also collected some other species to just see which ones had the most. Um, the Petersburg group also did a microplastics project, but they were looking at microplastics in ocean water. So they did kind of plankton toes for microplastics and then um, compared different sites. And then we had a group in Wrangell that actually did our first fecal coliform study, which was really neat. Um, so they went to a commonly used dog trail and did a comparison with um, a control site where there weren't dogs to see if there was, was an increase in fecal coliforms. Um, because of people not picking up the after the pets. Um, and then we had a group in Craig that did a paralytic shellfish poisoning um, comparison between part of a beach that was near um, a dump and then um, part of a beach that was further away from the dump to see if maybe something from the dump was causing harmful algal blooms um, that would be causing a difference, a local difference there. So I think that was all five. Yeah. Well, so is there a place that if folks were interested in, in the sorts of results that come out of these projects, is there a place that they're presented or um, that folks can could check it out? Yes. You can go to uh, the Razor website, which is uh, if you just Google UAS Razor, um, it should pop up for you. And there's a, a link that you can click to watch the presentations. Right now it's kind of on our homepage, but... Um, it'll live for a while, at least in our um, meeting archives as well. And that's a good place to learn more about the program, too, if you're interested, because there's a little bit of information about kind of the whole Razor year and um, all the things that the students have uh, accomplished up to and including their research projects. Nice. Well, I'll get the link from that uh, for that from you, and I'll post it when I post the, the recording of the show on my website, at least, so people who find it there will be able to just go directly through. Um, so you're... You had communities, uh, two different groups. So it sounds like it's based on the high school. You might have a couple of students per school kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then and then you had, uh, see, three three different communities, if I remember correctly, four. Uh, Wrangell, Petersburg, Craig, Sitka, Mount Edgecombe. I guess that adds up to five. So yay me for math. Um, <laughs> uh, so are you, is this something that, that folks you're looking to have elsewhere in Southeast Alaska as well, as, as folks are interested in, and there's mentors available? Yeah, so we work with, um, you know, we're, we're happy to work with any students that are in a community that participates in the CEDAR network, which is most of um, Southeast. But we're really interested, um, just for the goals of our grant, to reach out to kind of the more rural areas or areas that have the fewest opportunities for students to, to do this kind of work, um, to have these kinds of opportunities. So we've got um, Aurora's going to go with uh, Carl, who's gotten a lot of shout-outs today. That's Carl Cranston-Simmons. He's a Pacific High student who's graduating this year. Um, and so he's going to go and help um, meet with some students there and do some shellfish activities with them and mm-hmm. um, see if they're interested in working with Razor next year. Um, we're also going to go to Huna and meet with some students there. And basically, you know, if you're if you're interested in the program and you're intimidated by the idea of doing a full year or doing a whole research project, we've got a lot of different levels that you can participate at. So we're hoping to kind of um, start engaging with, with more communities and, um, and kind of building the program that way. Nice. Yeah. So, so the best way if folks are just hearing about it here and interested and like, Oh, I know somebody that might like to do that. Then, uh, should they like get in touch with their school or go through the Razor pro- uh, website or like what's the best way for folks that that either themselves as a as a high school student or they know somebody who's a high school student that might be interested in this? 
Yeah, there's on our website, there's a interest form that you can fill out and you can fill it out for yourself or you can fill it out for someone else that you know um, that just kind of lets us know, oh, okay, this person's interested and kind of what, what their parameters are, what their interests are. And um, then we'll, we'll reach out and have a conversation with you so that we can kind of narrow things down a little bit more. But that's probably the best way, but you can also just give me a call or shoot me an email or whatever. I'll kind of make sure you get where you need to go. All right. And so you're based here in Sitka at the University of Alaska Southeast? Yeah. Yeah. So if you're in town, you can stop by. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. So it is, uh, yeah, so if I, if I'm understanding correctly, you, you, in the fullest form of it, it's a year-long program. You start out in the fall, meet up with you, kind of work out who your mentor is going to be, and then, and then kind of together work out what the project's going to be. Along the way, you pick up um, uh, Whale Fest mm-hmm. and, and do, do the whale, participate in the Whale Fest as, a, as an, um, what do they call those, audience member mm-hmm. or something. You don't have to give a talk, let's just put it that way, but you get to observe the talks and, and then have you know, conversation and, and kind of debriefs about that. And then, and then you're working on your project throughout the year. And then in the springtime, you kind of, uh, fingers crossed, you know, there's results of some sort, whether they're, you know, what you expected or not is another matter, I guess, you know, life being yep. what it is. <laughs> Science being what it yeah. is. Yeah, that, there's for sure. That. But there's, you know, you're going to have learned something from mm-hmm. the process, even if, even if your results didn't, uh, didn't pan out the way that you might've hoped. Yeah. And, and essentially present that. And so you have that, that experience and you get some sorts of credit for this. Yep. So, um, what you said was exactly right. I'll just emphasize the program's really flexible. So if you're like really busy in the spring and um, you can get all your research hours in in the fall, um, or we have students that do most of the program in the spring, um, we have students that just do one credit in the spring, and so they're pretty much done by mid-March. Um, uh, and so it, it just kind of depends um, for each student. But our our two and three credit students in the spring um, do the research posters and then um, our one and three credit students do science communication presentations in their community which is you know a creative thing so it can take kind of any form and and I work with students to kind of come up with something that's exciting for them Hmm. for their projects but um, this is Kelsey's project. All right so this (laughs) is your science communication. All right have we communicated science today? That's right. Um, Yeah so it um, yeah, it kind of depends on the student kind of when those things happen. Um, but yeah, we try to be as flexible as possible. Nice. So this then ends up being an opportunity for re- uh, university credit, essentially college credit. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, we've got students that just do whale fest one credit or can do as many as four credits in the year. Yeah. All right. Well, that's good to know. Well, we have just a few minutes left here. So maybe I'll, I'll go back to Kelsey for a moment or two. So you've, you've done all this and and I guess you mentioned that it sort of has shifted your perspective a little bit because, you know, mm-hmm. you hang out outside. You're not necessarily the most ambitious of outdoors folks like some of your classmates who, I don't know, maybe some of them are the ones that are making those tracks up on Rostovia all winter long. <laughs> <laughs> I look yes. at them with binoculars and go, oh, those folks have some ambition, but yes. uh, I'll wait till it's uh, not so snowy. <laughs> but, uh, you know, getting out and, and that. So do you, like, how do you find yourself, you know, out and about, uh, wandering around and, and noticing things like, your sense of curiosity, you know, has that shifted from from sort of investigating in a little more depth these these kinds of questions? Yeah, I think so. I think you know, just having more awareness about animals around me, which you know I've always had, but just more in depth and more understanding them. I think, um, 
you know, just when walking on the beach now I can identify shellfish, which I could not do before. And, you know, it's like, I know they look different, but what else? You know, what's that matter? Um, yeah, I think, you know, it's just widened my view of science. And, you know, I've taken a science classes, and I think this was just like another one that, you know, introduced me to more material and more information. Yeah. And so or do you, is this something that you think that you... You know, it's a good experience regardless, I imagine. Mm-hmm. But but um, are you like, well, you know, maybe I'm not going to become a shellfish bi- marine <laughs> shellfish biologist. Uh, you know, nice experience, but uh, I like things with vertebrae or something like that. You know, what are your sort of uh, uh, things that you imagine you might find yourself doing going forward? Um, I'm not sure that I'll, you know, stick with shellfish forever, uh, but I'm definitely interested in some sort of marine biology. And mm. yeah, nice. Yeah. And so, Aurora, you're getting ready to, well, I guess you've got a little while yet um, to, before you head up to CLAG. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's springtime now, and so it's, it's shellfish biomass season. I see. Um, kind of <laughs> happens before CLAG. So I was in Kodiak last week with two partner tribes doing two shellfish biomass surveys. And tomorrow I go to Yakutat and do another one. <laughs> so, I, I suppose the... the um, the work of, uh, I mean, as you've described it, it's very seasonal. You know, you have your it sort is. of cycle that you're moving through with the seasons. And mm-hmm. I suppose there's a rhythm to that that maybe is, uh, I don't know, it depends on your personality, I guess. But it seems like to me it could be kind of nice to, to just have the seasonal rhythm where you don't have to do any one thing for too awful long. Yeah, I think so. And with all the sunshine lately, I'm like, I get to go outside? <laughs> Even though, you know, you're outside digging holes <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in the mud. Yeah. <laughs> The Full sun. bibs and rain gear and everything, but you're still outside. <laughs> yeah, I remember. I remember there was somebody who was actually working on on this building that we're sitting in the Raven Radio building, uh, building the the porch that uh, is out there on the on the south side of the building, I, and it was just it was a gnarly day. It was like blowing sleet and and like probably 35 and sort of snowy snowy rainy kind of thing, and and I just like ah, oh, it doesn't look like the best day to be out. And he goes the Worst day outside is better than the best day inside. That was his response. I was like, all right, well, you're suited for this work then. I was like, I don't mind being out, but it sure is nice to kind of be inside for some of those days, uh, in my view at least. But, uh, yeah, so it, it's, uh, yeah, it'd be interesting to, to you know, find out how, how things go in the future uh, with, with some of your fisheries work. Sounds like you get to travel a little bit and do the, the shellfish thing and, yeah. And um, yeah, maybe maybe over yeah four years of data as you start to accumulate more data with your inventories, it'd be interesting to find out what what's going on with the clams in the in the sand. Right. Yeah. 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 It'd be great to speak um, about Starry Gavin. The project does emphasize a lot of data sovereignty, um, so we collect data and support our tribal partners, but we ultimately give that information as it's their property. Mm-hmm. Um, so we give it. Uh, to our partner tribes and they can do with it as they will uh, build baseline data share it um, with subsistence harvesters you know imagine you know you want to go harvest subsistence wild foods and you know where to dig and so we have that information or rather the tribe in each respective community you know owns yeah i was wondering about those heat maps i was like those probably sound like maps where people are going to want to dig but uh, right <laughs> yeah yeah those probably don't get published. I don't know. Yeah. It's different people. Are, my dad was pretty fussy about his berry spots, for example. You know, you don't just you don't just start or the abalone spots right. uh, back in the days. Like you don't tell people 
where they are. <laughs> Secret spot. Yeah. <laughs> well, he had some experiences where he took somebody and says, please don't tell anybody else about this. Mm-hmm. And then he went back and there were no more abalone there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, come okay. to find out that somebody else had been taking somebody else. And, you know, and then it's one of those things. So it is an interesting, like the openness versus, you know, we'll just keep this one quiet. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, it, they're on the beach. So, you know, you've got to pick your beach. But, yeah, it is an interesting. And Stargaven being so accessible to town, you know, it probably mm-hmm. gets a lot of pressure. So do you have a sense of, is part of the project also uh, surveying uh, harvesters and, and seeing how much that people are harvesting? Um, we, we don't do that um, portion. We mostly just collect and then um, we share our pertinent findings with fishing game. Um, there's not shellfish harvest regulations in southeast. So that was part of the inspiration for this project was um, what is harvest like and are we seeing recruitment? Are we seeing young clams? Um, and so, like, as Kelsey's project, you know, showed, we are seeing young clams. So that's not an indicator of overharvest. Um, but, yeah, we're, we're not um, banging on doors yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair enough. Show me your shells. <laughs> <laughs> that, I'm that, here to age them. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, that'll be that'll be for next year, right? The, uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> you can just have that on a big big poster. That'll be a separate grant. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> Job sounds, security. Sounds like fun. Yeah, no, so it is it is interesting. It seems like it's a good idea to have that that data in the hands of folks that are able to um, make some decisions and, and recommendations and, and monitor, really, because it's mm-hmm. it's hard to... It's hard to know, and and right. it's easy for things to get overharvested when people aren't really paying attention. You know, right? Absolutely. You know, when you're the only one that's down there, when you're down there, you don't know who else has been there, and mm-hmm. tide comes up and the holes fill in, and hard to say. So, well, yeah. Thanks for coming in, Aurora, and and Ellen. Anything else you'd like to to add here as the director of the Razor program, and and sort of, I guess, the responsible party for bringing this this uh, this whole thing together. <laughs> Oh, I just, um, I guess I'm just really grateful for all the people who have supported our students and our mentors are kind of number one on that. I think this program is really fun because, um, you know, I get to kind of guide these these projects from Sitka, but then we have folks on the ground in each location that really know their communities and really know how to get students out safely and um, how to put them in the best position to get the data that they need. And um, so I really enjoyed kind of that, that partnership and having a uh, a diverse team that that brings different things I think to the students and we're always looking to grow the program we're always looking to change the program make it better so if people have ideas for us or feedback um, let me know I'd love to talk more about kind of why we do what we do and how we can do it differently nice well thanks Ellen and Kelsey and Aurora thanks for coming in thanks thank, thank you, you. You've been listening to a conversation I recorded earlier this spring with Kelsey Simic, Aurora Taylor, and Ellen Chenoweth. They were all working on a project as part of the Razor program. You can find out more about that program at razor.alaska.edu. That's razor with an S, R-A-S-O-R, .alaska.edu. I want to thank them for coming in to visit with me, and thank you for joining me here on this Ken Nature Show this week. As always, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or you can get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. I'll look forward to being back in a couple of weeks as we'll be into June and nearing the summer solstice. Till then, this has been Matt on the Sitka Nature Show, KCW Sitka.